This is Decolonise, a podcast about black sovereignty. It's a space for us to listen up to our mob, our First Nations voices across our countries. What is black sovereignty? What does it look like, feel like? What would it mean for this to be honoured as leadership? And how do we do it? Our lands everywhere are hurting and we are being called on urgently to ignite this healing process. Our lands need to be well for our people to be well. Our ancestors are waking us up and we are responding. Decolonise is about the well-being of everyone. Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander and non-Indigenous. We all need to take part. It's time to decolonise. Time to unsettle the settler. Time for our internal revolution. I'm Jaja, or Radri woman living on First Nations sacred lands. And I'm here to yarn with our mob who want to talk up about decolonise. In our fifth episode, we're yarning with Jimmy Kyle, a mad Thunghuddy brother and frontman of the band Chasing Ghosts. You'll often see Jimmy repping a T-shirt that says, Teach Black History. Hey fam, so deadly to have you here with us yarning today. And um, straight up, just want to acknowledge our ancestors that are here as we yarn on First Nations sacred lands. Mm-hmm. And um, if you can tell us where you're from. Uh, I'm a Tangari man from the mid-north coast of New South Wales from Bilibian Creek, uh, which is in the upper Maclay Valley. So first up, brother, you are, you are really solid for us and I just really want to acknowledge the work that I see you doing, um, bringing a lot of vital issues to the forefront. I guess first up we can touch on decolonise. Mm-hmm. A lot of people ask me what decolonise means and I always say it's a yarn. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's, it's an epic word that is so layered and complex. And for me I think it delves into how every aspect of our lives is affected mm-hmm. by the way we now live in this colony. Mm-hmm. I like to highlight that That invasion is a structure, like not an event, that this is an ongoing violent act that we are living under. It's it's not just something that affected our first colonised generation. And I feel like this is still quite invisible to a lot of people living on our lands. Mm -hmm. And so today with you I want to touch on some of the difficult yarns about the responsibilities of both mob and our non-Indigenous brothers and sisters. With that... I'd like to acknowledge that we know they are not responsible for their ancestors. Mm -hmm. However, they are living with benefits of white privilege. Mm -hmm. And I think I'd like to put to you how you feel like they can help right things, whether we say on behalf of their ancestors. Mm -hmm. And also, does this speak to something I've seen around white Australia paying the rent? First, I too want to acknowledge I'm on... Ghana country today in Tandenya and pay my respect to their elders, past, present, and acknowledge the Thangari Nation and your old people as well. Um, so I think the idea from a European perspective is the present experience uh, 
is not malicious and therefore that is equated with it's sometimes not harmful. So it's not that whitefellas are deliberately in all aspects, you know, the person who's just going to the shops, who's just trying to pay the bills, who's got a couple of kids and a mortgage if they're lucky or unlucky to have one, um, that that person's not being malicious. But nonetheless, they are the beneficiaries of what was done and what is continued to be done to First Nations people. And we found ourselves in a relationship we never consented to, that we didn't ever participate in willingly, that we've not been asked to shape the nation in our image, but rather it's been shaped in the occupier's image. And if you don't fit within that paradigm, you're seen as being ungrateful or resentful or not being able to move on. But like, where can you move on too because you're only still present on Aboriginal land wherever you go so it's not like you can escape it you can't escape it and we are continuously connected in it and I think you see as well as the continuum exists within families you know every family that doesn't speak their language fluently is a product of assimilation policies designed that's not a family that is more or less Aboriginal but nonetheless are having an authentic Aboriginal experience because that's, a, like, that's the evidence of the assimilation policy in a human form in front of you. When you see light-skinned blackfellas, it's the same thing. When you see, um, you know, in, in, a, in a very more real-world-today scenario, it's as, it, the thinking is so backwards that we have Pitinjara and Yakinjara and Lurichi kids doing the curriculum in English after they speak, Pitt, Yakinjara, Aranda, Western Aranda, you know, probably Kukata and Arabunda as well, or Walpuri, and, and yet the, the curriculum is in this foreign language and these foreign concepts. And so it's sort of like there are these extreme examples at the beginning of the invasion, but then there is this normalised relationship that we have. And we keep saying that we don't consent to the relationship, that it's not been on our terms, but we just get ignored. Mm-hmm. And so the, the silence is an interesting one, you know. And I think for white Australia, if you are the person just going to the shops and you're not being malicious, you probably don't know how to change the system yourself either. And so sometimes I think... You know, what are we asking of those people? And for me, what I would be asking is that when black voices speak, that white ears are listening, that we're seen as part of the solution, not the problem. So we, that we, we already have our own solutions, that our elders should be listened to and that when there's dissent amongst our elders, that they need time to form... Um, a quorum of voices, they need time to be able to to do it in our way, that we do things slower and we do them because we measure twice so we cut once, we don't race ahead so we have one more problem to, 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 to unpack later. And I think that's hard in a fast paced world where there's a political cycle of four years and so I, I don't know, there's decolonising yourself first means I guess to recognise we're in an occupation. We're in an occupation. We can see it on our people. We can see, 
you can see it in our health, you know, that we're not eating the foods that we should be. So we see our people more often than not carrying extra weight, but being undernourished. We see it in our curriculum where we still are pushing soft versions of the assimilation policy, forcing senators in parliament to speak in English rather than in language, which happened to the Northern Territory senator when she made her, um, her uh, first speech in parliament. We see it with kids learning a foreign curriculum when we're not prioritising their own cultural worldview and, and putting money behind it because that's a really clear way that the white population says, well, we don't value your language. We don't value your connection to it. And in fact, there's a financial incentive for white people to not value it because it would make it harder to disconnect us from land and therefore that would become harder for mining companies to keep raping and pillaging our country. And that's really what Australia's economy has been driven by for so many years and that's the reason there's a financial invested interest in black people not having voice and not being able to talk truth to power because it would, it would reshake sort of the relationship that they, if, if we had the assets, we would be in a vastly different position and we don't. And so we have to keep fighting because we're in the struggle to keep fighting, but the white population have to recognise that, you know, they're, they're benefiting from this, whether they see it or not, and that they have more power that they can contribute than they possibly recognise. And each community is going to have a different opinion. And within that community, just like the white population, there'll be a diversity of viewpoints. So I think treaty, the, the, the train we're on now with treaty is, is part of that. I'm not sure whether Uluru's statement is, is the answer. I don't think it'll be a magic elixir. I don't think the, the current Labor Party will be a magic elixir. I think every time in history we've been promised stuff, we've always been let down, so none of us are holding our breath. But I think we've got to keep... I think our responsibility is to, is to survive and shine. That's all our responsibility is. It's not to teach every white person. It's not to convince everyone. That's, it'll be a job we'll do for the rest of our lives, to try and maintain what we can so we can pay that forward. Can you feel it and build upon our bones? Seen a black flag fly, flying above. See blood and sand, that's what we're standing on. And someone's lying, but what have we done? Yeah, I think um, when you said space, I feel like that's a real key that I know is something that we really are asking for because I think there's also an invisibility around what you've mentioned here that, like, I think a lot of people, I've really noticed this again lately, there's almost an assumption that all black fellows are on the same page. And I've spent a lot of time lately explaining there's so many complexities due to colonisation that we're trying to work out between ourselves as well to move forward and I keep coming back to space and so this kind of leads to something else I wanted to yarn with you about is that like we know that every day in the colony is a hustle for us mob and then I wanted to speak to you as a an artist and a musician and how you currently feel about the way the industry is operating 
and maybe then we can share a bit more around this space. The industry, I think, like it's crazy. We've, we've been talking about the last couple of days is you know, Kid Leroy's on a McDonald's commercial. Um, when I was a kid, there weren't many young Aboriginal pop stars, certainly no one with the fame and prestige and... I don't know if prestige is the right word, but the, the, the reach that the Kid Leroy has, like, it's pretty incredible. And I think that in itself is something to see. Like, there are a bunch of white kids and, and non-Indigenous Australians that are going to see the Kid Leroy as someone they can look up to. And um, I think that's incredible. I think that's really cool because, you know, we probably had Yothin and Indy, but they were, like, the first Aboriginal sort of band I'd seen... Um, and, you know, they were adults that, you know, this is like a young guy that's being the pop star role and it's, it's pretty cool. And, um, and so I think like there are, you know, obviously the Baker boys and, um, you know, Dallas Woods and Tasman Keith and, and there's just so many, you know, Emily Waramara and there's, and then there's these, you know, seasoned musicians that have, been working quietly well before anything was in vogue like the Emma Donovans and doing the work around language and, and song and there's just so many great amazing artists and they've been there since you know like your shirt since the Black Armband they've 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 all got we've all go back to these artists you know the Coloured Stones and the Warumpi and, and and all those allied artists like you know Oils and others but and obviously just where it's at today like it's humming but there are things I feel like, like people are nearly treating blackness like a genre. And I feel like in some contexts that works. So when it's a community-led event, I think that's fine. I think in other spaces, it's like, it. why is this sort of a token space, you know? And I feel like probably what really happens is at first we start out with tokenism and we have to make space. And then we recognise the anxiety falls away because the great artists fill the space. They were always there, they just didn't have the space. And then it becomes sort of self-fulfilling and it's like it sprouts seeds everywhere and now it's just there and it's around people. And so now there are all these avenues, there's more sort of paths for Aboriginal artists to, to, to reach um, their, their full potential and to be able to share their works with other people. I would be more interested in thinking about where we're at in five years time you know where there's already been a Kid Leroy and there's already been a Baker Boy and so what does that mean for all the other great people that go well you know I'm I'm an Aboriginal person who's gonna do it my own way and I'm gonna do something completely different again so yeah I've, I've sort of got mixed feelings I guess I feel about it I'm really happy for the success of so many great artists and what it does for everyone um but I do wonder why outside of community bills, quite often you don't see those artists build in other spaces. And I think that's another obstacle to carry. And I think there is lots of artists breaking through that. And I, I think what Blackfellas offer is authenticity. That's, that's just the key of it. Every black artist I can think of just oozes authenticity. And that's something that, um, stands up over many, many years and decades. Look at the Barker, you know? Powerhouse. Amazing, 
amazing, you know, and she's such a beautiful soul. And, um, you know, I just think she's just speaking for so many people and there is intersectionality here. It is not just Aboriginal people, although we feel it, it is also Aboriginal women that have created space that needed to be there, that should have been there from the start. All of this is complex and this Mm. kind of speaks back to space and also I think connection when you were talking about feeling that authenticity from our artists. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's to do with our deep connection. That's, you know, black song is really black story. I don't think, you know, in a lot of these, let's just put in the context of it's a show that people realise how much this story is still us singing up country, even though we might not be barefoot on the ground around a fire, this still lives in us and this is what we are still bringing through. And I think this is where Decolonise has been working on the idea of growing an eco-industry based on kinship and ecological democracy, Mm -hmm. which is where that space is needed for us to be able to to listen, to follow our seasons, follow our cycles, because I've been working with a lot of young artists Mm -hmm. And I think dissolving some of that glitter around what it means to be an artist in this, in this colony mm. and a musician and a performer. And so the kinship, the idea of kinship and building an eco-industry is that when now artists go out, mm-hmm. and I'd, I'd be curious, yeah, what this is like for you too, and, and playing broadly to non-Indigenous audiences, mm-hmm. you know, how, how connected and supported are they feeling that their music is... I guess valued within our communities maybe first because I think it's I think it's quite big to have to to go out into an audience that is not connected mm-hmm. and I don't mean this as a judgment but not connected to what it is for our black artists to be sharing their story and their song. Oh there's a few things there so the first part I guess is you know when we speak language it's an act of defiance when we sometimes when black people are just in a space it's an act of defiance and people don't see that. So like when you see a white artist up in front of a white crowd in Australia, you could just be in any Western country. But when you see Barker up on stage occupying the space with thousands of non-Indigenous people in front of her or um, Denzel, um, Baker Boy, then you recognise immediately you're in Australia. I'm the pain and the proof, the history that lays out the truth. And they couldn't walk a mile in our shoes. Tell us to go bush when they all introduce. Fuck it, we've been here for too long. Matriarchy blood, yeah, I've been built strong. Song lines deep, yeah, got me singing songs. Cause I can't forget where I came from. Bakanji country, Mongo man. Pass it to my kids, tell them this your land. I came from the dirt, go back in red sand. There's a river, uncle, I'm proud of who I am. Creator, creating me tough. And I'm calling out all your bluffs. Saying the past is all in the past. Well, that dark past still lives in my mind. You recognise immediately there is a context that comes with Aboriginal artists to the stage, a history that comes. So, you know, there's like immediately you're in a black space. The confidence that comes with being so authentic. Authenticity is a strength, but it's also extreme vulnerability. And so when you use it like a weapon or a shield rather than something that can be used against you, uh, it... I don't think people recognise how difficult 
or how much of a climb or a self-introspection has had to occur in that person to be able to get in front of so many people and say, this is me unapologetically, take it or leave it, this is what I think and how I feel. And all humans envy and acknowledge and appreciate that to some degree, especially when it's not from the ego, when it's just from the self. So there's all this context that comes I feel like when I play to a predominantly white audience, like the bill I'm about to play, um, it's completely different. My conversation is not necessarily anticipated. So it's not necessarily what people thought they were going to hear for the night. And some of them find it very confronting. And I've occupied a space in their evening that they had carved out for themselves to enjoy. And now I've provided uh, a mirror to some certain beliefs that are taboo subjects to talk about in Australia. So when I start sort of talking on stage, a lot of uncomfortable feelings come up for people. And some people are ready for that conversation and others aren't. When I was in Brisbane, there was a bit of a... There was a lack of respect, I would say, is the best way to describe it for sharing stories that are really vulnerable and that are really important and cultural stories on stage and, and having some people not understand that was the time to be able to... That's, that's when you really show respect. You know, That's when you sit in the place of gratitude because you're receiving knowledge that many of us have worked very hard to maintain or to access or to be privileged enough to be taught. So when we're sharing with a wide audience, sometimes they don't understand that's the context that's coming with what's being shared, so they don't know how to receive properly. Um, what do you do? Do you not share? Or do you share and create story and song and art and challenge and let people go home and unpack it for themselves? And I tend to think, in the words of Mandela, playing small doesn't serve anyone. So, you know, go and say what needs to be said. And when I get really anxious, I just ask the old people beforehand, just say what you need to say and just let me be the vessel. Don't let this be about my ego. Don't let this be about me. I'm just going to be in service of you. And I know when I get off the stage, whatever is said or done, I'm right. I've done that right with them. You know, I don't need the gratitude of others if I'm, if I'm right with them because it's going to we're doing life together we're doing life forever together you know the me and the universe and our old people so that's sort of it's up to white people then to unpack what i've said and usually the things i'm saying are not they're not they're controversial but there there's not like i would ask anyone to point out the lie in what i'm saying at any point and i think that's why it's controversial because it's the truth and that's what makes it so uncomfortable but that's, that's what we're here to do as artists sometimes, we're, we're those vessels. And if I was writing songs purely just about myself, I, I would feel maybe there was a missed opportunity to say what, when I'm 80, I would want to say. On the other side of fear is freedom, so let's go and find out. Let's go and say what needs to be said. And if all this ends tomorrow, then I've tried my part. You're listening up to Decolonise a podcast about black sovereignty. Decolonise is about the well-being of everyone, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander and non-Indigenous. We all need to take part. It's time to decolonise, time to unsettle the settler, time for our internal revolution.
think yeah, when you are talking about um, the truth, mm. I think you know our last episode uh, with brother Bo Spiram, mm. we were talking about the frontier war stories mm-hmm. and his podcast. Mm-hmm. And I think that leads me to talk about one of your tracks in particular. But Bo and I definitely were yarning a lot, and I know it's a thing now, but truth-telling, mm. it's become sort of a term. Mm-hmm. But I think that is where what you're saying is so potent. And it is uncomfortable, but I think this is part of us all waking up and moving together, mm-hmm. is that this truth needs to be heard and acknowledged and, yeah. I just want to say thanks for standing up there. And, you know, I, I see this in a lot of our artists. So it was really interesting to hear you share how you work with your old people to get up there in those spaces, which can be really challenging. Well, they're always with us, you know. That's the thing is that they're always walking with us. And um, I tell you, like, another great artist is Danny uh, Puckana woman. And um, my nonta Danny, she's, she's deadly as. And... Her and Craig Everett um, just did a song recently, um, Strongest Mob. And, you know, that platform they've used to share language. And when I was down in Lurituita, I stayed with them. And, you know, we had such a fun time and they're such beautiful souls. But the re-bringing of Palawakani, bringing the language to life and hearing it around me and, and, you know, like I know I'm gifted to hear it. The words like Nita, you know, just simple things like brother that... Probably for huge swaths of the population, that that could have been lost forever, and they're they're speaking the language, they're teaching people language, and it's dope, you know, it's fire, and we're we're seeing that all these different interpretations, all these different artists, they're all contributing and giving back to their community and empowering language and empowering people to be proud and shoulders back. Ever since my old fellas walked on the Milky Way I knew that I was gonna see my culture live another day See it on a different level and it's here to stay Got the culture back and it's never gonna go away In the mocker getting tucker with my nader That's my brother shucking oysters in the summer Singing boom chakalaka I've been tracking from the stars when I'm looking up Dig it then I grind it then I paint it when I okra up you don't wanna muck with Madame Buckingham. They want a war, don't wanna talk about a massacre. You don't wanna whip Ayaran in the Mangana. Mila dinner to the Mukko in the Akura. They had to use their lies and stories for dividing us. But we've been fighting all this time, so you should honor us. Neither and the warner from a line of warriors. Strongest mob on the Truida, ain't nobody stopping us. The other part is, you know, there's some festivals down there, those cultural festivals like. Um Portalina is one, and there's a lot obviously here on the mainland as well, where those cultural festivals, where we, we we bring tradition, and then we sort of round out the night with contemporary music that generally happens. You know, you got all that community stuff in the day. That's that's magic. You know, that's magic. That's where the sharing is happening again. It's the arts are leading the space in in educating and sharing, because we know there's all these different formats to reach people to get them curious and we're doing what the curriculum's not doing and we've you know that's it's amazing i've seen danny's song had 33,000 views on youtube it's been out for about a week 33,000 people are hearing a language that the vast majority of that population would never have heard and now they're hearing it en masse you know because the school system couldn't deliver on it because uh, the appetite's not being there in around Australia to put First Nations languages back on the map. The thing that 
I'm trying to do, I guess, in, in it going back to Bo and, and, and truth-telling is I want to talk about, you know, let's name the murderers. Let's put a name and a face to them. I'm sick of seeing them up on statues and white people walking past these, you know, these statues that they've sort of got means nothing to them. God knows they defend them viciously, but they seem to mean nothing to them. Like if I pointed at most of them, they wouldn't be able to tell me who they are. But when you see people like William Crowther, who's got a statue in um, in um, Nipolina in uh, in Hobart, you know this is a man who was a body snatcher. This is a man who who after trugging in his husband, her second husband, I think it was, had passed away. He'd been buried for several years and he's gone and dug him back up. This man became the premier of the state of Tasmania. He was involved in all these sorts of things and had skeletal remains in his collection. Um, when you see the people like, um, you know, the Batmans and knowing what they did in, in Luratuita and what the, the, the huge atrocities they caused. And then they came to Victoria and wanted to do the exact same thing again. And we have the statues there, you know, of the, of the same sorts of people, the Benjamin Boyd who enslaved thousands of people. And, you know, and there's a bust in the Mackay Council Chambers right now of John Mackay, you know, a slaver in, the, in Benjamin Boyd's fleet. And it's like, why are these people got statues up of themselves? And what it says is that white people revered them. They seen them as people to have reverence to, wealthy and and powerful. And it's like, yeah, because they stole their wealth. They stole it off First Nations people and they, they weren't civilised or cultured. They were barbaric murderers and rapists. And so I think when you, you know, you recognise that so many of these people, let's start telling the truth. Let's play the game. You want to you want to say that we're we're making this shit up? If we're not making it up, then let's talk about why is there a main street in my hometown called Dangar Street, named after Henry Dangar, who actively tried to cover up the Mile Creek Massacre with the Sydney Morning Herald, who would cleanse the papers. You know, they would sterilise the papers of any of this sort of of the massacres. Why does that man have a statue? Why does he have a statue? I think up in Armadale or something. But why has he got? Streets named after him in my hometown. A man who actively tried to cover up the massacre, who used his parliamentarian privilege to influence people to stop justice. So we have to... This comes back to the... It's a battle for the soul of, of this, this landmass that we call Australia, continental Australia. It's a battle for the soul of it. Are we honest? Do If you're a white fellow, all you've got to ask yourself is, do you believe in the fair go? If you're a white Australian... Do you believe in the fair go? Do you believe in being fair dinkum? Because if you do, then you can't say putting murderers up on statues, naming towns after slavers and murderers is acceptable. So let's take them down. Let's give them back their black names, right? So let's decolonise. Let's give them back their black names so you recognise you're in Aboriginal space and that you're actually here as our partners, because if you, you, you can't, if you want to, we have to rebalance the, the power equilibrium. And there are all those signals that we send, and signals are important, symbols are important. People say, oh, you know, it's just symbolism. Symbols are dangerous and powerful, as well as they can be empowering and hopeful. So we have to choose the right ones to send the right message. So statues that say John Mackay the slaver should have a bust up in the council 
an arm of government, that sends the wrong message to me. That says that justice and equality and democracy actually are only for white people because you put that bus right at the front of the council. When you've got a statue up for Angus Macmillan, it doesn't say that, uh, you know, the councils down near Gippsland are serious about reconciliation. They're only serious if they don't lose something. But where's, where's the courage to stand up amongst the white people, amongst other white people, to say, guys, why do we have a statue of Angus Macmillan? Oh, he, he created this area. No, he didn't. This area was Gunai Kurnai country. It, it was in existence. He came and he killed 400 Gunai Kurnai people by his own account, and him and the Highland Brigade killed at least 1,000 people, women, children, old people, unarmed people, innocent people, people not involved in any sort of conflict, and he came and did that and usurped the land off them. Why do we still have a statue up? What does that say about the white population deep down? And I can't answer that. They have to answer that. They have to say, oh, well, we just didn't realise that's who he is. Okay, then let's take it down. Okay, we do realise who he is, but we don't want to take it down because that's our heritage as well. I would say the answer to that is look around you white people. Your heritage is, well, firstly, it's in England, it's in Ireland, it's in Scotland, it's in Wales, it's maintained by lots of institutions. It is under no threat of dissipating whatsoever. The two things, we can chew gum and walk at the same time. You can still have lots of great things, but do we have to walk past people who led massacres and have them revered in the main street and really pretend that that's acceptable? I just can't understand it. I, I can't quite fathom it. Totally hear you, brother. I mean, this is this ongoing violence that we're talking about that is quite invisible to people, that our people feel that. You're listening up to Decolonise, a podcast about black sovereignty. And we're yarning with Jimmy Kyle, a Thangari brother unveiling the truth of black history. I've had a few situations lately where it's almost like... Um, People know that these massacres or these acts of violence happen, but it was sort of back then and it's almost like it's not really real. And sometimes I have to bring it right here and go, if I killed your children and hung this symbol here and hung that over your head every single day, are you okay just to go, oh yeah, okay, let's just get on with it? Well, there's, there's two parts to this. I guess one is we know that symbols are important and we, we know that because it is the reason that those statues exist there. They were there to let us be put in our place. That's why those statues are out there, to let you know that a man who can kill, be responsible for the deaths of a thousand innocent people can be revered in the white population. But to find a black fella up on a statue is slim pickings. It is about a, para, a, a, about a dynamic that they have come here, that they believe they have conquered. Well, none of us have ceded our sovereignty we will win the fight. And, you know, if the Irish would, you know, resist English rule for a thousand years, you don't think we've got it in us? We've come this far. We're not going to quit now. And if you are of Irish ancestry and you listen to this, why aren't you on the side of blackfellas? Like the world's largest empire. Let's just get it really clear. There's about 200 countries on the planet and about 20 of them haven't been attacked by England. That's nine out of 10 countries on the planet have a history of being attacked by England. 22 countries have no history of being attacked by England. So what that tells you is who the aggressor in history was. Now, who went and wrote the history books? 
So don't gaslight us every single day saying things like, oh, you know, when he's going to move on. Where are we meant to move on to? We are living in it. We are in the invasion. It hasn't ended. It exists around us. And we are so now we're expected to be polite to the descendants of those who have benefited from it. In Australia, people are still denying what occurred. Why all Australia's got the highest rate of sun cancer on the planet? It's because we're in a black country. This is a black country in the black part of the world. All our neighbours are people of colour and we just have a large white migrant population that is vastly different to being a white country. White countries are on the opposite side of the planet in the northern hemisphere where they don't get sun cancer all the time when they walk around in their areas because that's where the genetics are from. Now, there's nothing wrong with them living here and saying, hey, it's not my land, but it is my home. Yeah, by all means. But it is also our home. And it most definitely is our land. So if you want to live here, be in partnership with us. You, you don't have to be part of the problem. You can be part of the solution. But you can't be silent. And when blackfellas are speaking up, be a great listener. Get curious, listen. And when we're not in the room and other people are saying stuff, don't sit there in silence. Don't sit there in silence and wonder when we're going to get our shit together. Speak up and call it out and get your own shit together first. Lead the example. Set the example. If you want your children not to be racist, start with your own family. If you believe that we should be doing more, go to your school and talk about the curriculum at the school. If you're voting for the Liberal Party, don't bullshit me and tell me you believe in Aboriginal rights or you believe in Aboriginal sovereignty or you believe in treaty because that party doesn't represent any of those things. It never has. It's not interested. It's interested in the issues of mining companies. So become informed, but we just can't do all the work for white people as well. It slows us down a lot. We keep walking slower and slower so white people can keep up. What you can do is lift our voices up. That's something you can do. If you're at a business place and you don't have a reconciliation action plan, start there. If you're at a school and you don't see Aboriginal stuff in the curriculum, go and be, you know, go to the PNC meetings and bring it up. If you're, it comes to NAIDOC week and there's nothing on at your school or there's nothing on at your workplace, ask your work why not and get involved. NAIDOC week is not for Aboriginal people. Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people, we provide it for us and everyone else to participate in. It is, in fact, white people can enjoy it just as much, non-Indigenous Australians just as much. Come and learn and be an extension of our culture and, and, and you know, walk next to us. But don't slow down so much. You know, you've got to keep up with us. And at the same time, don't race ahead too much either. You know, don't do anything about us without us. That's usually my rule of thumb. Nothing about us without us. Don't go make too many decisions. You know, it'll be like a group of men making decisions for a women's program and then when it goes wrong, blaming the women for it, which I think is pretty much how history's worked for a great deal of time. You've got to have whatever marginalised group you want to work with. They've got to lead the conversation and the rest of us, whoever that is, we need to be good listeners. And we all win from it. You know, when, when black folks do well, it's good for white people. It's not bad for white people. Nothing bad happens when we do well. Everything good happens. Every time black fellows do well, it's good for everyone. When women do well, it's good for everyone. You know, it's, not, it's, not, it's never at the expense of anyone. That's, that's a really backwards way of kind of looking at things. Word, brother. It's really deadly and it's really pulling these things together and offering that space for non-Indigenous people to, to see what they can do. But look what Bo's done. Bo's, you know, the work that Bo's done, big plug to my brother Bo. He's, 
you know, the Frontier War stories, he's just by collating, just, you know, not government funded, um, you know, a grassroots blackfella pulling together one of the best resources of information that you could get. Um, if you're not listening to his podcast, you need to get amongst it. But, um, you know, there's so many, it, I think sometimes it's, if you don't know what to do, enable good work that's already happening sometimes. You know, you don't always have to start it. Um, uh, reinvent the wheel. There are people in community already doing that work. And I think the other one is if you come into that community space and you're new to it, earn your stripes for a while. You know, show people with your actions you're committed, not by your words, not by your rhetoric, not by your social media, not by a black tile three years ago and then we've not seen you at a march since. It's important that non-Indigenous voices um, sometimes they just enable the great work around them happening. That That's a way you can contribute as well. Thanks for your time, brother, and your wisdom and, and your impact. From about 1815 in this country through about 1865, the East Coast and the West Coast were on fire. If you have a look at most of the buildings, the really big, beautiful buildings, one of the things you'll notice is they're all built directly after the frontier wars. And the reason for that was because the colonies were spending all their money trying to fight the Ghana people here in my home country, in Dungani country, they were fighting the Dungani nation. In Western Australia, in Boraloo, on Noongar Buja, in Perth, they were fighting there. They were fighting all along the eastern seaboard. And there were lots of warriors that fought those resistances. People like Windarine, people like Dundalee in Queensland, People down in Tasmania like Malboyena and Tanaminaway. People on the west coast like Jundamara and Yagan. And the people that they fought against were the world's largest empire. Not your enemy, but definitely most likely ours. The world's largest empire. The English attacked all but 22 countries on the planet. Out of 200 countries, all but 22 have been attacked by England at some point. And people here, right beneath us, under all this concrete, led a defense against the world's largest empire. If you've ever watched Star Wars, Blackfellas would be Luke Skywalker, and the English Empire would be Darth Vader. If no one's understood that uh, analogy before, you should go back and watch it, figure it out again. The reason I bring it up, is because when my grandmother, when I was little, she told me this story about the Tower Creek Massacre. The Tower Creek Massacre happened in 1856. And at school, we never learned anything. There was nothing in the textbook about it. No one ever talked about it. There was no headstones. There was no markers. There was nothing. And then years and years later, I would read about it in some flash book. And the reason my grandmother knew was because there was only one single child that survived the Tower Creek Massacre. His name was Bubba Jack Scott. Now Bubba Jack was shot out of the trees. See, my old people, the Thungari Nation, they fled and they hid up in the tops of the trees as the Red Coast soldiers came and as the militia came and the pastoralists that came with them. And they decided rather than to fight, they would hide. And everyone who was pregnant, 
Everyone who was, wasn't able-bodied, they all fled into Tower Creek. And they climbed up to the top of the trees in Tower Creek and they hid amongst the vines so they wouldn't be seen when the red coat soldiers came. And eventually when they came, they shot every single person they could find. 88 people were shot that day. I want you to think about what Port Arthur did to this country, what Christchurch done to New Zealand, and start to imagine what thousands of these massacres have done to First Nations people. And this isn't about guilt, it's about knowledge. It's not about guilt, it's about understanding and empathy. Now a mother does what a mother does best. And Bubba Jack's mother defended his life. And she took the fall and as she fell out of the trees, before she hit the ground, she took the fall for her child. And a white fellow called Herdley Scott, age 22, much younger than most people in this room, he could hear the gunshots. And he came up the river to find out what was happening until he came across all the bodies. And when he went through the bodies, he tried to find if anyone was still alive. And under a possum skin coat, here was baby Jack Scott, Bubba Jack. Bubba Jack and my grandmother grew up together. And my grandmother told me that story well before it was in any sort of history book. The true history of this country is still yet to be told. And I hope everyone here is with me and trying to get to the truth and trying to get justice. This song is called Summer and it's about the Tower Creek Massacre of 1856. You've been listening up to Decolonize, a podcast about black sovereignty. Mad thanks to brother Jimmy Kyle for his substance and impact. Music by Chasing Ghosts, 
tracks Dig and Summer. Run up the Homeland's EP from Chasing Ghosts and follow Jimmy as he educates so-called Australia on its true history. This episode of Decolonize was recorded and produced on First Nations sacred lands known as Ghana. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we live and work and pay respects to elders past, present, emerging and to my grandmother, Martha Hamlin. For full credits and info, head to decolonize.com.au or follow us on Insta. Insta.